1: By putting those principles out there, they have given us a very strong basis, a very strong theme for our society.
0: That's author J.L. Bell talking to us about the misconceptions and some of the lesser known stories of the Declaration of Independence. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the 4th of July, even though it's August, and its impact and misconceptions, and how those misconceptions shape our understanding of the document here in the 21st century. Our guest today is J.L. Bell. Uh, his friends call him John, and he's written a wonderful article talking about some of these great little anecdotal stories and some major misconceptions that have survived 250 years later uh, into the 21st century. There's a lot we need to understand about the Declaration of Independence. Articles like John's, as we will see, are very important to, I think, clearing up a lot of the uh, baggage that comes with it. Uh, because this is a relevant issue. Uh, we celebrate the 4th of July every year as Americans uh, as a commemoration of this event. But what event? The signing of the Declaration, the ratification of the document, most Americans can't even say that. As long as there's fireworks involved, they're all usually pretty happy. But as long as we, as a republic, endure, this date will be amongst our most sacred holidays. And we can't allow ourselves to lose the pertinent details to the trappings of mythology. Because there's a lot of it out there. When you mythologize something, you make it small. When you make something small, you make it so that it can fit in your hand and be manipulated. So it's important we hang on to these things. Our guest, J.L. Bell today uh, will help us dispel some of the myths and maybe even reveal some stories you may not know already. So with that said, sit back, relax and enjoy our interview with J.L. Bell. J.L. Bell. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. Tell us about your background.
1: Okay. I grew up in Middlesex County, Massachusetts, uh, as in every Middlesex village and farm from Paul Revere's ride, so very near the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Uh, The bicentennial started when I was in my fifth grade, and the state curriculum here focused on the revolution that year. So between the local historic sites and school and the bicentennial, I got this triple dose of Revolutionary War history, and I loved it. I also came away thinking that all the major stories had already been researched and told a lot. Uh, And uh, I was not expecting uh, to be able to find out anything new. Um, After college, I was a book editor for 10 years. I wrote a children's book. When I decided to go freelance, I started to research a revolutionary war story, a little one that I hadn't heard before, thinking that it might make a good children's book. And I kept finding more stories like that that hadn't been told. Uh, in 2006, I started the Boston 1775 blog at boston1775.net, and I got connected somehow with Todd Anderlech on reporting the Revolutionary War, and he uh, asked me to become a Journal of the American Revolution contributor and associate editor, and then a uh, couple years after that, he called me up and asked, hey, do you have any book ideas? And I had had a book idea hanging around on my hard drive for years, and it needed a push from somebody like Todd to make that happen. So that's where The Road to Concord came out.
0: What first drew your interest into this topic?
1: Um, again, I can go back to the Bicentennial, and when I was a kid, I I bought one of those souvenir replicas of the Declaration of Independence on fake crinkly brown parchment. It was very impressive, uh, with all the signatures at the bottom. And uh, so that's always been on the back of my mind, of course. Uh, but also, in my research and in my writing, my articles, especially for the jr, I keep coming back to stories of revolutionary language and lore, uh, not things that were written down during the 1770s and 1780s necessarily, but stories told in the 1800s within a generation or two of the Revolutionary War. And the question always comes up, are they reliable? Or it might be better to ask, how reliable are they? Uh, because we can never be totally sure, and we can never totally rule out something, but uh, is it good enough to pass on? Um, can we say this happened? Can we say this certainly didn't happen? Um, it, it's it's a, a philosophical question. It's a, an epistemological question. I always have to look up that word. But about how we know what we know, or how we think we know what we think we know.
0: If you could uh, give us a quick summary of the process of the Declaration of Independence, the drafting, the ratification, uh, and the signing.
1: Sure, uh, uh, Richard Henry Lee brought the proposal for the uh, thirteen colonies at the Continental Congress to declare independence uh, on June seventh. Four days later, the Congress chose a committee to draft a declaration explaining why, and. They worked on that, those, you know, the famous five guys Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston. Uh, And they delivered their draft on June 28th. And that's the subject of John Trumbull's famous painting. So that's an important moment. Then the Congress debated independence and debated the draft for several days. They approved independence on July 2nd, so that's another milestone. They approved and sent the declaration to the printer on July 4th, that's of course the most famous date, and it wasn't until July 19th that they decided, hey, we should also get a really fancy copy of this handwritten by one of Philadelphia's top scribes, and so that was almost an aftermath. Uh, it took him, uh, people think it was a man named Timothy Matlack, it took him until August 2nd before he was able to deliver the full handwritten declaration, and that was the date on which it was the, that document was signed. Not, everybody who, uh, not every delegate was available to sign on August 2nd, so we can tell from printed uh, re- copies uh, of the text, over the next few years, that people kept adding signatures until about 1782, uh, one or two at a time. Uh, The stories in this article for the Journal of the American Revolution are all about that main signing day, August 2nd, 1776.
0: These signatures have become somewhat legendary in the American consciousness, maybe you could say the most famous signatures ever. Um, Talk about this phenomenon a bit.
1: Yes, and it, it's an interesting thing because I, I mean, I just went through a whole timeline of different dates, some of whom were legally or diplomatically more significant than the signatures. And yet, when we think of the Declaration as Americans, we think of the signatures, especially the John Hancock signature at the center bottom, uh, with all its uh, big letters and swoops and, and whirls. Uh, in fact, John Hancock is slang for a signature for us uh but your John Hancock on something? Originally, for the first generation of Americans, the Declaration was not a handwritten document and a collection of signatures. It was a text that was printed by local printers and uh, appeared in your newspaper or in broadsheets and read aloud. The signed copy that we think of as the Declaration was kept in the Congress's archives and then the federal government's archives, uh, and hardly anybody saw it. Um, When Thomas Jefferson became a national figure in the late 1790s, early 1800s, his party pushed the Declaration as a more important founding document. And so that was the beginning of more attention to the Declaration of Independence. And then in 1818, the first reproductions were marketed. In 1823, the federal government authorized a facsimile copy uh, probably getting ready for the semicentennial, the 50th anniversary of the signing in 1826. And as soon as those images started to appear and be reproduced and spread around the country, that changed how Americans thought about the documents. More and more people... When they thought of the Declaration of Independence, they pictured that signed copy with everything written in hand and all the signatures at the bottom, and those 56 men, their names are laid out. And that made the act of signing more resonant, more important than, the, for instance, the actual voting, uh, because it wasn't the, the same, same men who voted and signed, uh, but we remember the signers. And so that's how that phenomenon came about. The the process of making that facsimile of the Declaration, in fact, uh, damaged the original copy so much that it's very faded now. If you go to the National Archives in Washington, it's it's very difficult to read. So almost all of the reproductions we have now, like the one I got in the Bicentennial, are actually reproductions of the facsimile from 1823. They're not... Uh, based on the original anymore. So we're seeing second-generation copies.
0: One of the stories you talk about in your article occurs between Elbridge Gary and Benjamin Harrison. Uh, what happens?
1: Uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a signer from Pennsylvania, told this story in a letter to John Adams, signer from Massachusetts, reminding him of a moment during the signing ceremony. And according to uh, Dr. Rush, he recalled Colonel Harrison of Virginia said to Mister. Gary at the table, "I shall have a great ad- I should do a Southern accent. I shall have a great advantage over you, Mister. Gary, when we are all hung for what we are now doing. From the size of weight and my body, I shall die in a few minutes. But from the lightness of your body, you will dance in the air an hour or two before you are dead." So it is black humor, literally gallows humor about. Uh, what they were doing as they were signing, or what they feared they might be doing as they were signing the declaration, they feared they might be hanged as traitors. Now, Doctor Rush wrote that uh, le- uh, story in a letter in 1811 to John Adams, and he said, "You remember this? This happened." So clearly, he was uh, recalling a shared experience. Uh, there's another source for that story, published in 1823. We know that Rush was definitely at the signing. We know that Adams was definitely at the signing, and he didn't raise any objections to this story that Rush told. So we have two eyewitnesses uh, who apparently agree on this story happening. That's about as good an evidence as we can find for a story of something that happened during the Revolution and wasn't immediately written down. So this story is something that I think has a very good chance of actually having happened, even though a lot of uh, Latter-day historians say, oh, it's probably a myth, because it sounds mythic and because it was passed down orally. But if we actually trace it all the way back to the original sources, we've got two guys in the room where it happened, seeming to agree that it did happen.
0: You mentioned a story often attributed to Benjamin Franklin, uh, but your research shows otherwise. Could you talk about that? Uh,
1: Sure. This is a quote that uh, probably everybody knows. Uh, It first appeared uh, attached to Franklin's name in uh, Jared Sparks' biography of the man in 1840. Again, it's about uh, Gallows' humor at the signing. According to Sparks, Hancock said, We must be unanimous. There must be no pulling different ways. We must all hang together. And Franklin replies, yes, we must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. And uh, this is just the sort of witticism with wisdom attached that we associate with Franklin. We like to imagine him saying it just the way we like to imagine him coming up with all those poor Richard Almanac uh, sayings, even though most of them were cribbed from previous books. In this case, in the, the almost 30 years before Jared Sparks published that anecdote about Franklin, a book was published that attributed the same line to a man named John Penn. Uh, you must hang together, or you must assuredly will hang separately. John Penn was a descendant of William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania. He was a lukewarm loyalist who actually went off to London in 1775 with the Continental Congress's Olive Branch Petition. So his He was trying to be a liaison between the uh, radical patriots and the royal government. Uh, And so his uh, witty statement was sort of a warning, whereas Franklin's was uh, a witticism, according to this legend, at the moment. Now, I I don't see... uh, I I think that Franklin just... uh, We like to attribute... Uh, witty things, clever things, to Franklin. He's become a magnet for all sorts of sayings. Uh, There would be no reason to, if he had actually said something, to uh, attribute it to John Penn, who was basically forgotten. On the other hand, if just because John Penn was basically forgotten, uh, there would be a lot of uh, intellectual pressure to say, hmm, here's something witty somebody said during the revolution. It must have been Benjamin Franklin. So in this case, I think there's pretty good evidence that somebody said uh, you must hang together or you will assuredly hang separately, but I don't think the evidence points to Franklin as saying it.
0: Your article details a series of recollections known as the Revolutionary Anecdotes, one of these great sources for historians to use, but not the easiest to use. Could you talk about the challenges of using a document like that?
1: Sure. This is uh, a couple of little anecdotes uh, about the signings, which I found in uh, newspapers from uh, 1841 and on. The uh, great thing about uh, these days, you can find, if you're subscribed to the right uh, databases or you can get them through a university uh, library, uh, you can look up, uh keywords and phrases in these newspaper databases and try to isolate the earliest one there was Unfortunately, an explosion, for, unfortunately for this research purpose, an explosion of newspapers in Jacksonian America. So there were lots more newspapers, lots more issues coming out. The printers were very hungry for copy to fill their pages. And one thing they would do is they'd copy out items from other newspapers, sometimes giving credit, like this "This is from the uh, Boston Advertiser, and sometimes not. And uh, the revolutionary anecdotes with a two- or three-paragraph item uh, that showed up under that headline in lots of newspapers. Uh, The the earliest I've found is uh, August 1841 in Pennsylvania, but I'm certain that there is some earlier appearance of these anecdotes. And it would be very valuable to know where they first appeared and if there's any other information attached to them in that first appearance uh, in order to assess their value, their reliability. Uh, But it was... uh, if this was a, a popular, obviously a popular item that lots of printers thought would interest their readers. And what were the, these items, these revolutionary anecdotes? Well, they were anecdotes about the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which shows how much interest there was in that day, even as early as 1841.
0: One of these stories features John Adams and Stephen Hopkins. Really uh, an impressive story. What uh, What happens?
1: The the anonymous writer of this anecdote said that he or possibly she can't tell visited John Adams in eighteen 8, eighteen and Adams talked about Stephen Hopkins who was a Rhode Island delegate. Hopkins had a palsy in his hand after a stroke. Adams said so. Adams at the Congress wrote notes and other things for for Hopkins. He said he was Hopkins's emanuensis, and Adams asked asked him if he should sign his name to the Declaration of Independence for him. And Hopkins, according to this anecdote, replied, No, I will sign it for myself. If we are hung for signing it, you shall not be hung for it for me. If my hand trembles, John Bull will find my heart won't. So this is yet another anecdote about people signing the Declaration while worrying about being hanged. Uh, Adams's stories there i i am very skeptical about some of the stories that adams told about the revolution late in life and yet others seem to be more reliable they often put him at the center but this time he's not at the center he's near the center beside hopkins and it's hopkins who is the sort of hero of this story uh... we can look on the declaration of independence the, the parchment and we can see that hopkins signature is indeed kind of shaky uh... And most important in terms of reliability, the story appears to come to us only one remove from Adams himself. Uh, But we don't know who actually is reporting that story. We don't know who the I voice is. Uh, I'm also a little, I I think maybe that line about John Ball will find, my heart won't tremble, uh, that might be... uh, little bit of icing on the cake uh, that may not be as reliable but uh the idea of hopkins wishing to sign the uh declaration himself well we know he did sign and we know that adams was in the room when that happened and here we have somebody saying i spoke to adams in november 1818 and this is the story he told me so that's yeah, I'm not certain that's totally reliable, but I think that it is worth uh, thinking about. I think it's, it's worth retelling as a, possi- as a definite possibility.
0: Perhaps the most famous signature in American history is that of John Hancock. You find that in your research, uh, that story that is associated with the signing is specious at best. So uh, talk about why you feel that way.
1: Yes, that's a story. Again, we hear this story an awful lot in different versions. Uh, it was published in 1841 as part of one of, one of those revolutionary anecdotes. Uh, the newspaper said, "When and this time there's no source attached, no, no person saying, I heard this from somebody who was in the room. It just says straight out, when Hancock signed the Declaration of Independence, he did it with a bold hand in a conspicuous manner and rose from his seat pointing to it and exclaimed, there, John Bull can read my name without spectacles. And there are lots of versions of that story. Sometimes it's King George can read my name without spectacles. Sometimes it's King George's ministers can read my name without spectacles, and so on. Uh, The problem with any of those stories is, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, the Declaration wasn't signed to send to London, it was signed to keep in the Continental Congress's archives. So nobody in London was supposed to see that signed declaration. Uh, This is a story that's inspired by Hancock's big elaborate signature on the document, but we can't trace it to a reliable source, and it just makes no sense. So even though this is a story which is told over and over and over, uh, in fact, more often, I think, than the Hopkins story, it's not reliable at all
0: with all of these questionable tall tales floating around the public consciousness, what do you believe we should really remember uh, about the declaration of independence?
1: I think the most important thing is that the, it was about founding a government on natural rights or what we now call human rights. The idea that we are all endowed with these rights. We all deserve this equal treatment. We all deserve a say in government. The idea that the, basis of any legitimate government is the consent of the governed. By putting those principles out there, even though in many ways uh, the signers and the framers and that whole generation were not able to live up or did not fully perceive the implications of those ideas, they have given us a very strong uh, basis, a very strong theme for our society. Uh, Jefferson said those ideas in the Declaration were self-evident. I think I prefer Lincoln's approach when he talked about the government of the United States and its principles as a proposition, a proposition that we have the responsibility to prove in how we go about governing ourselves.
0: J.L. Bell, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin MacLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.